But for the rest of us, open up to Matthew chapter 27. We're covering verses 45 through 50 today. So here we go. You ready? Are you ready? All right, let's get going here. So here we are. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So from 12 noon to 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him, mockingly. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Lord, as we uh, walk through this little section, God, I pray that you'd open our eyes to the depth, the richness uh, of what's happening here. In this short little narrated event, there is rich theology. There is essential theology. This is critical to, to forgiveness for any hope we could ever have. It's happening right here, right now, and this is what we're looking at. So, Lord, I, I pray that as we, as we uh, go through your scriptures now, God, that you would open our eyes and that you would just, just impress this on our hearts, stamp this on our heart, that we would understand what is happening here and why we should fall on our knees and, and, then, and, and want to lift our arms in praise at you, the holy God, who would offer up his son on our behalf. So, God, we thank you for what's ahead this morning. And, Lord, may your words change our hearts, change our thinking, and so transform our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, I've said it several times already, this passage right here in last week, uh, but this one essentially is what's going on here is critical for you to know. Not, not that you can say the, the, the Hebrew and Aramaic here of Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani. That, that's not essential. But understanding what's happening here and why he's saying it and why there was darkness. It's so important that we understand it. It's all over the New Testament and it's forecasted, prophesied in the Old Testament. See, Old and New talk about what's happening right here. All right? So, um, you know, a matter of fact, Paul... In, in 1 Corinthians 1, I'm going to read a longer passage. Just listen to what he says about what his message was and how it's so tied to what we're looking at this morning. And this is out of 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. For the word or message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, who aren't, who aren't saved, okay? But to us who are being saved is the power of God. What's happening here in Matthew that we're looking at is the power of God. That's what Paul says. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of, the God, of God... 
The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe. Why is it foolishness? Well, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, those Christians, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your own calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who become to us wisdom from God, or who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And he goes on, let the one, let no one boast, but only to boast in the Lord. Oh, here we go. That's, I'm sorry. I thought I missed something here. Here in verse one now, chapter two. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the central message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Well, we're going to look at that this morning. I want to front load my sermon with all the theology that's happening in the event we're looking at. I want us to look at passages all over the New Testament that refer to this one event. Because when we say Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, that is true, but that is not all that it means. It's, that is the results of what he did. But you need to understand the different doctrines that are built on this. Jesus is our redeemer, because that's one of the things he did. Jesus is our sacrifice, because that's one of the things he did. Jesus is our reconciler, because that's what he did. Jesus, I mean, just goes down. He's our atoning, he's the atoning sacrifice. He's the covering over his sins. All these different facets of, of what happened that we read about in the New Testament happened here at the cross. Okay? So that's why I want us to, to understand because there's verses that you'll read in 1 Peter. Like, he's referring to the cross, but he's saying it in a different way than maybe you've heard it before. So I want us to kind of see the different places of where Scripture t- touches on the cross and then it applies it to our life, okay? So I want to just front load it. So it, here's this. So we see in Romans 3, 9 through 26. And you can turn there to Turn to Romans 3, verse uh, 9. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Again, there's a, I know there's a lot of reading, but I, I want us to be impressed with what Jesus did. To know what was happening. Because we're, we're in a culture that says, oh, you're okay, I'm okay. We're in a culture that, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as they are. And, and I believe in a God of love, not a God of punishment. But that's, that's, not, that's not biblical thinking. 
That's human-centered thinking. So I want us to see what Paul has to tell us. Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews better off compared to the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we Jews have already, or for we have char- already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. We could just stop there, couldn't we? All mankind is born in sin and proves it so quickly. Those of you with little infants, they prove it very quickly. They're just like mom and dad, and we're just like our mom and dad, aren't we? But the Bible's clear about this. None is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's quoting from different Old Testament passages here. He's laying proof upon proof that this is true, in case there's anyone who disagrees. Verse 13 gets even worse. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and in the way of peace they have not known. And here's the final one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Paul couldn't be clearer. We are not mostly good. We aren't. Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Jews, you have the law, but that doesn't do anything for you except to condemn you. That's what he's saying. Without the law, we're all condemned. And hey, Jews, if you think you have a special advantage because you got the law through Moses, no, you don't. You're just as guilty, even more so. But, and that's the greatest little word there. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been displayed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith, how? In Jesus Christ, for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of, the glory, short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ah, we like that word, redemption, right? Then he goes on to say, this Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. What's that mean? Payment. The payment of the justice of the holy God that he demands because his law has been breached, has been broken. There's a penalty due. The holy God is the holy judge. There's been broken law, therefore there's penalty. And Jesus is the one who pays the penalty. That's what propitiation means. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So how did the propitiation get paid? By his blood. He had to shed his blood. And this is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
So God is still being righteous, even though he's the one solving the problem through his son, it's still, he's still proving righteous. He's not overlooking sin, he's providing the payment for us. For us. So it proves that he's righteous because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the one who justifies for the one who has faith in Jesus. What happens at the cross is that the holy God is satisfied by the propitiation of his own son, the payment of his own son. The the one who covers over our sin, the one whose blood pays for our sin. So the judge is satisfied, but he's also the one who is, is justifying those who would have faith. This righteous God has provided righteousness. Jesus, when he died, did he deserve to die? No, it's very clear. Adam, Adam and Eve were told, if you eat of this tree, you sin and disobey me, you will die. That's the penalty of disobedience. You will die. Jesus never sinned. It's clear in Scripture. He never sinned. So he did not owe a penalty. But since he voluntarily offered himself, his and he had fulfilled all righteousness. He didn't just show up all of a sudden and say, here I am, the innocent one. I'm going to die for you. He lived a life and fulfilled, it says in Galatians. He fulfilled the righteousness of, required by the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. Therefore, when he went to the cross, he had all the righteousness we needed so that when he died a death, he didn't have to die. He could offer that righteousness that we get. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We'll look at it in a second. But you guys get that? And being God, it satisfied the holy God and it was sufficient for all who would believe in him. It's so important that what we understand, the cross is non-negotiable. It wasn't just a good idea or a moral example. That's what some people, some theologians say, because they don't want to say that God demanded that the son die. Oh, because then you've got a vengeful, evil God. I couldn't believe in a God like that. That's what some theologians say. But the Bible couldn't be clearer. What is Isaiah 53? It pleased God to crush him. And Jesus says, that's the purpose of why I came, to die as a ransom for many. Who is he buying us back from, from Satan? The answer is no. Satan doesn't own a thing. He ransomed us to buy back the people because we were under bondage to sin. We were in the camp, the kingdom of death and sin. He paid the price to who? The holy God. I'm saying all this so that we get in our minds, we understand What's gone on here? There's more to come. We are all indicted, yet God takes over. Completely apart from our own attempts at law-keeping, God's saving righteousness comes only through faith in Christ's atonement. Scripture employs several themes to describe what Christ accomplished on the cross. First of all, he is the substitutionary sacrifice. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. There we go. He is the substitutionary sacrifice. Okay? The Savior bore the penalty of sin in the place of sinners. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself, talking about Christ, bore our sins in his body 
on the tree that we, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Galatians 3, 10 and 13. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not buy, abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became a curse for us. That's why it got dark, and we'll talk about that in a minute in our passage. He is the substitutionary sacrifice. Propitiation. God's wrath against sin is fully satisfied and exhausted in the person of our substitute. And I already read Romans 3.25. Do you understand that? Here's the deal. When Jesus paid, he paid for it all. We'll look at that this next week. There's seven statements he makes on the cross, and one of them is, it is finished. The work of redemption, the work of being the propitiation, our atoning sacrifice, was complete. That's what Christ's forgiveness is. So when you're struggling with your own sin, and I do too, I feel the weight of it. When I have rebellious, high-handed sin where I just do it even though I know it's wrong and I keep doing it, and I just feel terrible, the Holy Spirit convicts me because I'm as one of His children, so He wants me to feel miserable. And then I start, I just want God's forgiveness. But here's the deal. Here's what I've heard in the world on Christian radio, and this is so wrong. Oh, you just need to learn to forgive yourself. You guys, no, you don't. You don't forgive yourself. Who forgave you? When you, have to, when you start going down that road, you have to learn to forgive yourself, you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You should be turning there. And you should hear what he says. It is finished. Redemption accomplished, forgiveness granted. And it's not that, it's not that, you know, the idea of, of a, it's what it is, it's appreciating the fullness, the greatness of our wonderful Savior. See, that thought about you need to learn for yourself takes your eyes off the most important person you can look to. It's the wrong step. You get stuck here. Because guess what? You will fail again and again, and you'll never be able to fully forgive yourself. That's why you have to turn to Jesus, and you have to realize what he said. It is finished. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, he's got the great high priest who totally understands our weaknesses. And he's the one that says that he stands day after day as our advocate, our defense lawyer. What does he say to God the Father about us when we sin? Not guilty. Matter of fact, when God looks at us, what does He see? His children who are in His Son, who are perfectly righteous. The reason I want to hit on this is that I see too many Christians getting stuck, and I get there too, but get stuck in, in gloom and misery. There's appropriate sadness for when we sin. Please hear that. But you can't get stuck there and wallow there. If you're wallowing there, it's your eyes. They're not focused on Jesus. They're focused on you. It's still self-worship. Look to our wonderful Savior and what He did. 
when the God of the universe accepts the sacrifice and the Creator God says it is finished, what does that mean? It means what He says it means. Amen? Amen. Too many people think that the cross is just for salvation, but the cross is for daily living too. Daily living. He reconciles us. Reconciliation is the alienation between man and God is overcome and peace is made. So many passages on this, but we'll just look at Colossians 1, 20 through 22. And through him, God is to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because he died, if you're one of his followers, what can he do? He presents you, is the passage up there? What does it say? In order to, that's the purpose of this. In order to present you, who's he talking to? Chris Brunzeel? Well, yeah, but just me? No, you. What? Holy, blameless, above reproach, before who? God the Father. Do you understand what's happened here? Do you, would you ever say that about yourself? I'm holy, I'm blameless, I'm above reproach. On my own, no way. I am unholy, I am totally one to be blamed. I am way, way below reproach. Everything, if it was just me, that's not true of me at all. And it's not true of you either. But, who's he? Jesus Christ. He has now reconciled. By what? His body of flesh, by dying on the cross, reconciliation has happened. And that is true of you. That's true of you. You, Sum again, are above reproach. You, Larry, are holy. You, yeah, you, Scott, too. Do you guys believe that about what God says about you? I know I'm yelling, but I get excited about this. We have hope now, you guys, by his death. The resurrection's important too, but don't forget the death accomplished what we desperately needed. Redemption. Redemption. Those enslaved to sin are ransomed by the price of the Lamb's precious blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, you couldn't buy it, but with the precious blood of Christ, that like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, the holy lamb of God died, providing redemption. Conquest, another picture of what happens on the cross. Sin, death, and Satan are defeated by the power of the victorious Savior. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. God became flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. We have been freed. You 
have been freed. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been freed because the Savior won the victory by coming in a body like ours, living a life kind of unlike ours because he was sinless, and then dying on a cross to free us from the slavery. He provided the victory. Our Savior King in this passage is accomplishing the work of redemption, the work of reconciliation. He is providing propitiation. This was planned from before the foundation of the world and here accomplished by Jesus, the Lamb of God. This was not plan B, C, D. This was plan A from the beginning of creation, from before the beginning of creation. God's plan. No mistaking. The sovereign one is in control. So having heard all this theology, now let's just walk through this short passage. So first of all, we're going to look in verse 45. We're going to see that we see in Christ's sacrifice, there was darkness over the land. All right, so now from the sixth hour, okay, that's nine eight, uh, from 12 noon, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, till 3 p.m. So for three hours, utter darkness. And we don't know if it was over the whole world, but it was definitely in the land of Egypt, or the land of Egypt, the land of Israel, all right? So, so looking at the events from the, just the last few chapters, we went from the Passover meal, the Seder, the Last Supper, at sit, around 6 p.m. on the day before, Thursday, okay? Then by midnight, he's in the garden praying, all right? And that's what, hap- what happens to him there. He gets arrested, right? And Peter slices off the ear and all that. Then he goes from there. He walks just up the slope from the Garden of Gethsemane into the city of Jerusalem. He goes to Caiaphas' house. Then he goes to Herod's little palace. Then he goes back to Caiaphas. Then he goes over to uh, see uh, Pontius Pilate in the governor's quarters. Okay, so he's all around Jerusalem at this point. Okay, and that's happening from about, where are we? 12 a.m. midnight to about 6 a.m. That's when all this, these trials were happening, all right? So from, from the garden to Golgotha, so from 6 a.m., by 6 a.m., he's, he's tried and convicted. He's been beaten and all that stuff by both the Caiaphas' or the temple soldiers as well as the Roman soldiers. He's led to Golgotha, and he's on a cross by 9 a.m. All these chapters we've been looking at It's been all condensed. It's all happening in a very short period of time. So from 9 a.m., he's on the cross and he utters, the matter of fact, we'll look at it next week. There's seven things he says while he's on the cross. And one of them is what we look at today. Okay, so we'll look at more of them next week. But from 9 to 12, he's on the cross. Then from 12 to 3, he's still on the cross, but it has gone dark. Why did that happen? We're going to look at that. Okay, and then he, he dies at 3 p.m. Okay, so just so we have that, so he's on the cross for how many hours total? Six hours, okay? So we have to understand that 12 to, from 12 to 3, there was a supernatural darkness because the Passover was held during the full moon. I mean, when there was, was it, it's the exact opposite, excuse me. So there, the, 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 the day, there's no way there shouldn't have been the eclipse, because a lot of people tell you, oh, this, it probably happened at this, this year because there was an eclipse around this time. You guys, this was supernatural darkness. Just like the star that announced Jesus' birth. Oh, that was probably uh, when there was, this star was aligned with that one. I've seen all these different explanations. 
You guys, it was a supernatural star. And most likely it was called the Shekinah glory of God. Why do I know that it wasn't just some star that aligned with whatever star? Why do I know that? Because it moved. It appeared and it moved. And matter of fact, when the, the wise men got to Jerusalem, they didn't know where the star was again because they asked, hey, where's the king supposed to be born? And when they got out of the meeting with Herod, what, what did it say? Oh, the star appeared and it took them to Bethlehem. It was a supernatural star that announced his birth. And this is a supernatural darkness to announce something else. Creation is at God's whim. God can do whatever he wants. Okay? It's a supernatural darkness. In all the land, I mean, again, in the mind, that's the Jewish, at least Israel. So darkness is reigning in the land of Israel. And we're going to see also next week that creation is responding to something here. Creation is, having, is being affected by the events of what's happening here. Because who's dying on the cross? The Creator. Whew. Whoa. And by the way, because I like you to connect dots, where else is darkness associated with it in Scripture? Well, the big topic, it's whenever it was the judgment of God, but let's just go back because I keep talking about this. Jesus is like Moses. When he was on the mountainside delivering the Sermon on the Mount, it says that he, he, he sat and taught the crowds. Well, guess what that was just like on the mountainside? That's like Moses. And there's so many things we're just seeing. Just Jesus is providing what's called the second exodus. In Exodus, the ten plagues, one of them was darkness reigned over the whole land of Egypt except for one spot. Did you know this? Except for where the Jews lived in the land of Goshen. That one part, they had light. But there was darkness over the land because God was bringing judgment on Egypt for enslaving the Jews and on the gods of Egypt to prove to the world that he's the true God. That was the whole point of the Exodus. Oh, and by the way, the night of the, first, the, the death of the firstborn, there was darkness too, the tenth plague. But at the end of it, who was delivered? God's people. Delivered out of Egypt and delivered to the land of promise. The whole Exodus event, you see there's more to it. But darkness was a key theme in the Exodus. Remember, we're supposed to connect dots. Wherever darkness is taught, we need to connect dots. So get used to your concordance when you're doing Bible study. And here we have darkness before the slaying of the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. And it was darkness for three hours. And that's just some interesting things. There's how many days was he going to be in the tomb? Well, three days and nights. How many days was uh, Noah or Noah, Jonah in the belly? Three days. You know, just notice three. Idea of completeness. He completely satisfied God's wrath. But back to this whole idea of God's redemption at, at, at Exodus. How were people delivered from the tenth plague? Hmm? They, they sl slaughtered a lamb. Oh, by the way, a lamb they had, had brought into their home for four days. They were supposed to pick a Jewish, they were supposed to pick a spotless lamb, have it in the home as a pet for four days, and then they were to sacrifice it on the night of the Passover. And they were to take, they were not to break any of its bones. Oh, notice what they didn't do to Jesus, didn't break his bones. But aside from that, they were supposed to take the blood from the lamb and do what? Put it on their the door lintel and on the two sides. Isn't that funny how it kind of forms because the blood drops off the lintel. Where does it go? It goes down. They were, and they were supposed to do what after they put that on the doorway? 
stay inside the house because the angel of death was going to come over and wherever there wasn't a house with that kind of sacrifice, what was going to happen to the firstborn in that house? They're going to die, the angel of death. But if you had the blood, it would pass over as long as you hid under the blood. That's the picture. That's why Exodus, we need to know Exodus. It's not just a fun story about God and Pharaoh and the Egypt and all this stuff. It's so important, the theology behind it, because it pointed forward to the Lamb of God who would provide his blood so you could hide under his blood so that God would pass over your sins. He would see the blood of his Lamb, the blood of his Son, And he would see the righteousness there and the people behind who are under the blood, who are in Christ Jesus, would be considered and seen as righteous. And he would pass over their sins. Isn't that cool? That's what's happening. Indescribable evil is happening at this point. If Jesus even said that this was the hour, the power of darkness... It's being done in the land. The sun fails. It's the word for it. Actually, the sun is just can't do its job. And people say, and scientists, oh, if the sun doesn't work, all life would die. It says, you know what? God is doing something here. And do you think God will still sustain his creation the way he wants to? Of course. But we can't miss what's happening. The sun failed. Creation preaches about God's judgment to us here. So let's look at Christ's final, one of his final words and filled with prophetic significance and redemptive hope in the midst of this darkness. So that's verses 46 through 49. We see Christ's sacrifice where we have Psalm 22 is being fulfilled. All right? Psalm 22, by the way, every Jew knew this psalm. A psalm, again, a psalm was what in the Jewish life? It's a song. They would sing it as part of their worship. They were taught, and they all knew that Psalm 22 was messianic. They all knew it was talking about the Messiah. It's a Davidic psalm, but they all knew they were taught it was messianic, looking forward. So again, when he says about the ninth hour, 12 noon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And here's the deal. In him, just quoting the first verse, Many say that it meant that the whole, he was intending to, to bring to mind the whole psalm. And matter of fact, if you look at the events of what's happening at the cross, you see Psalm 22 being referenced throughout. Psalm 22 uh, verses 7 and 16 are, are being fulfilled by, in Matthew 27, 39. We looked at that last week. Psalm 22, 8 is uh, fulfilled in in. This in, in last week's passage as well. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen is also fulfilled in last week's passage. Psalm twenty-two is all over this event, and I won't read it. It's like twenty. Uh, what is it? Yeah, there's a lot of verses. Yeah, thirty-one verses. And I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but I encourage you. That's why I put it in in this week's email to read ahead of time. But what's interesting to note about Psalm 22 is it starts out with that cry of agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? But yet, it ends with vindication. It ends with the vindication of the Son. Verse 25, for you comes my praise in the great congregation. 
See, Jesus, in front of all the people of Israel, was he getting praise or was he getting condemnation at, at the cross? In condemnation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet there's a change here. For you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all nations. I'll just stop there. But you get there's a turn. Psalm 22.1 starts out with the cry of agony, and yet then here we have total victory and vindication of this one who had suffered. During this darkness, Psalm, uh, we see 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is the exchange being talked about by Paul. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that for this purpose, in Jesus, we might become what? The righteousness of God. That's the exchange happening here. He became sin, not that he was a sinner, but he was treated by God as if he had, had, as if he had done all this. He bore the penalty, the burdens of our sin. God placed on him, Isaiah says, our, our sins. And yet, what do we get? We don't, it doesn't just stop there. We get something in exchange. What do we get? His righteousness. The righteousness that he proved and showed by obeying everything in the law for 30 plus years. That's why he lived so long. To provide the righteousness that, so that we could have it. Because when we stand before holy God, we have to stand as holy, as righteous, or else we can't. That's why Jesus did what he did. It's not just he forgave our sins. He also gives us his righteousness. How many of you feel like you're righteous? I don't feel it either. But what does the Bible say? What? Right. In him we are. Okay, so much accounting, you guys, is so much as reminding Christians of what the Bible says about you. Not what you feel, but what the Bible says about you. That's called renewing your mind by the promises of God. Because if you don't, you forget pretty quick. Because the reality of the way you live fogs your vision, doesn't it? It does for me. But when I look to the scriptures and I put on God's eye, his glasses, his word, I see clearly again. And then I know what is true. I don't see God with wrong vision. I don't see an angry God waiting to punish me at any chance he gets. What do I see? The loving Father who loves and forgives. How do I know? How do I know? His word. And what does he say? What is the, even if you don't have the Bible in front of you, look there. That's how we know. Isn't that cool? I'm not against wearing a cross. I think it's a cool thing to remind me, not of a dying Savior who's dying in agony and God failed. No, that's the greatest victory. It's my greatest hope. It's your greatest hope. Wow. During the darkness, this is the legal 
transaction that needed to happen. Galatians 3.13, I already read it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's a legal thing, judicial. He became a curse for us. The holy, holy, holy God could not look on his son who had become sin. Jesus willingly offered himself as the one to be treated as if he had committed every sin. He took our place. He's our substitute. And God turned away. Okay, when, you start, when I start reading commentaries on how do I explain how God the Father could turn away, forsake, there's, they, so many of them just say, look, I, the, the, the gospel writers don't even attempt to explain it because you can't. How do we explain how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it's a trinity, three persons yet one in nature, and then at one point God the Father had to turn his back on God the Son. The first time in eternal history, the only time, and it was temporary, but God as the holy judge had to turn his back on Jesus in his humanity who came in this body of flesh, whom he offered up for us. By the way, I'm talking language right out of communion. Take, eat, this is my body, the bread, what he's trying to take. That's what he did. He came in our body, in, our, in the flesh, as our representative. God the judge turned away from God the Son as a man because he became a curse for us. He became the sin bearer. The holy God had to turn away. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he just pretending? No. We'll say more about that. There's such rich theology. He, he calls, the first thing he says on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. The last thing he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In all of his prayers, Jesus always talked about God as his Father, this is the one time he says, my God, my God. The father had to turn away. But when he's ready to die, what does he call him again? Father. This three hours is significant. Darkness. God's judgment on sin. And Jesus took it for us. He took it for you. He took it for me. We can't adequately what it explains, explain what that cry meant, but we see what we see and we just go there. All this happened and Jesus suffered immense agony at this separation, this horrible judgment. The sinless one, the one who had never sinned in all of eternity took on our sins for us. Imagine that, the holy, holy Jesus took on our sins never did sin, never longed to do sin, and he took it on for us. This part here, and some of the bystanders hearing, he said, this man is calling Elijah because the, the Hebrew Eli, that's Hebrew for God, and Eli, Eliahu, that's Elijah, kind of sounds similar, but some, many commentators said they were just mocking him. They're continuing their mocking of him. And, and so one of the Roman soldiers runs to, to, you know, go get a sponge to quench his thirst. 
And, and, and by the way, in Jewish thought, they thought since Elijah never died, if you know the Old Testament, he didn't die. God came and picked him up in, a, in, his, in his chariot and took him away. Many, and that's why there's teaching that G, Elijah will come back. And did Elijah come back? Jesus says John the Baptist fulfilled the role of Elijah. But Revelation says Elijah's going to come back along with Moses. They're going to be, or wait, let me take that back. There's going to be two witnesses, and many think that's Elijah's one of them in Revelation. Sorry about that. But here's the deal. Was it a sincere mistake? Oh, he's calling Elijah. No, I think they were actually mocking him because the words are different. The Jews would understand that. But they're mocking him. They ran to go get this, this you know, sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed. Again, it's mocking him. And by the way, on a reed, it was a short reed. That's probably about the height of the cross right there. It's not that far, right? But to put a sponge on it so he can get some quenches thirst or whatever. But, but here's the real thing. Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. They're still mocking. It's, it's so dark. It's so dark what's happening. Dark in creation and dark in these, by these men standing there. But it's so funny that they're fulfilling Scripture right then and there. Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. <laughs> Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. We, Jews, esteemed him, considered him. He's on the cross. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. The reason he's up there is that God hates him. He's being cursed. That's what's happening. And yet, why was he on the cross? Because God hated him? No, that's the Holy One. But he was there to bear our sins. He was a man of sorrows. Yet all the while during this darkness, during this mocking by, this bystander, by these bystanders, the king is accomplishing redemption, being the sacrifice who is our substitute. He is the one in control of every aspect of this scene, these sequence of events, the actors in his redemptive plan. Everything they're saying and doing was planned. Jesus is the sovereign one who's in control of even the darkest tragedy, the greatest betrayal. The greatest mockery of justice. He's still in charge. It's going exactly as he had planned. Amen? And that is that the last part here, we see his sovereign control is displayed in another way. In verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And we get this from both John and Luke. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he yielded up his spirit. Again, that word yielded is in the active voice. And that why you say, well, active, what do you mean? Well, if it was in the passive, it says, and his, and his spirit left him. It doesn't say that. And it says that, and Jesus yielded over, gave over. It was Jesus' control. And it says, what kind of voice was he using here? Loud voice. Was it the, the gasp of a wounded, fading man? No. This was a strong cry. Everything he said from the cross was strong and clear, even at the very end. This was to show that he willingly did this, and he was the one who was in charge of his own time of death. Wait, who's the one in charge of my death? Chris Brunzeels. God is. He knows the end from the beginning. He, he's numbered my days, yet here we see Jesus doing what? Another God thing. He's deity. 
His action was to show that he indeed was in control and was and is the giver of life and the taker of life. He had been in control of the timing of everything throughout his life, the timing of his mission. If you look at the different passages that talk about, he kept saying, well, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Oh, now it's time. Jesus has been time in charge of the timing of every aspect of his life, of his mission. And even he said that he is the giver of life. And I just listed a bunch of those passages. You can look them up. He poured out his life. He laid it down. That should remind you of the good shepherd. He lays his life down for his sheep. He laid it down of his own accord. I'll just read you John 10, 11, 15, and 17, and 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my, down, my life down for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. What does that mean? Death and resurrection. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. It's my own decision. I have authority to lay it down. Do you have authority of when you die? Let's say you commit suicide. It's not you that takes your life. It's the object you use, whether it's poison or just the, the hideous ways. You, you, even then, you're not in charge because how many people have tried committing where it didn't work? You're hoping that object or whatever it is that you do takes your life. God is the one who's in charge. And here Jesus says, no, I have the authority. Why? Because he is he's God. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. I'm on a mission, and here's my authority to do what I choose to do. Augustine, famous theologian of the past, says, he gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. And by the way, his death was so soon that even Pontius Pilate was surprised. I mean, you read about that in Mark 15, 44. He goes, really? He's already dead? Because there are some who are coming to saying, hey, we'd like to get his body. Who was it that was asking for his body, by the way? Joseph of Arimathea. And when he was asked, Pilate says, he's dead already? So he sent a soldier to go check. Why? Because many crucified victims, well, they, it would take them days to die. That's why they were going to do what to the other to the other. Uh, two. They're going to break their legs so it would hasten their death because it was Passover and they wanted them to die quickly because, you know, they didn't want to offend the Jews. Oh, oh I, I'm sorry. That's so ironic. But here's the deal. There's also one last thing. At 3 p.m. on Passover is the same time that the lambs are being slaughtered in the temple. Here the Lamb of God is being slaughtered outside the gates as our substitute and yet, here's the lambs being slaughtered inside the temple. Do you think they missed the point? Yeah, they did. But you know what, though? It was God's plan. God was in charge. So what? All right, and I've just got two, and there's so much that comes out of this. I know I'm, I'm, I'm not even touching all that should be, probably. <laughs> but first of all, we should be amazed Christians. Amazed by a Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. May this add to our understanding and appreciation of His excellencies. He provided for us that which we need. We are in, according to Romans 3, 9-20, a desperate situation. 
because of our situation as lawbreakers. Either we pay for the curse slash penalty of sin, or we put our faith and hope in Jesus as our substitute, the one who paid that penalty for us in his death on the cross. Again, I I should have all this up here because I'm reading it because this is so important. Without him, we are totally bankrupt and need a redeemer, a savior. Our hope will only be grounded if the object of our hope is real and true and everlasting. Our hope must be in him. Our faith rests in this. Jesus saves for he alone accomplished reconciliation, propitiation, atonement on our behalf, paying our ransom, accomplishing our redemption. Do you see all those things that are happening here? Again, these are all words in Scripture that you need to know. Now, if you're, do I expect you to be able to spout them off? I, I couldn't even all together in one sentence. But that's what's happening when there's darkness in the land, and he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And here's the last part. We need to be awakened Christians. Alert to our calling as to who we are. In that very same passage where it says that he, God made Christ to be, no, to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Well, the two verses before it say we are his ambassadors. Not only are we seen as righteous, and you're like, I don't feel righteous, but he says it, cool, but he also says you're ambassadors. What is an ambassador to do? Represents the king to the, the land you're going to. We are ambassadors, so we carry a message. Matter of fact, we, we also live like Jesus, so we are living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1 and 2 say. We're just like Jesus. Now, we're not on the cross, but you know what? We were crucified with him, and it says we were raised with him, so let's live like him. That means we live lives of loving sacrifice, serving and loving. We're on a rescue mission, folks. We're on a rescue mission. Who are you rescuing? Ah, that's a good thing. We have an evangelism class we just started, and it'll be offered again in the spring. All right, we're going to have a fall class, uh, Foundations of the Faith, but then we'll do the the evangelism class again in the the spring. But guys, I want you to know we are ambassadors, so go and and tell people about Jesus. He died for us. Isn't that amazing? And and I'm not going to do much to to present this uh, next part, but we're doing communion now. We are going to do what Jesus did the night before we looked here. We're going to celebrate. The bread represents his body. He, he took that Passover meal and says, this bread represents my body that I gave for you. He came as a man to come in our place. He gave of himself. He says, this blood, the drink is supposed to rep- represent his blood, which is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant promised in the Old Old Testament says that one day the Messiah is going to bring a new covenant, not the Mosaic covenant. It's where you would not just have external, here's the Ten Commandments written over here that you have to obey. He says the law will now be put in your hearts and you'll be given the Spirit so you can live that way. That's the new covenant. And Jesus' blood is that which initiates the new covenant as the one that guarantees the new covenant because it covers our sin, it pays the price, and we are washed white as snow. Why? Because Jesus says, it is finished. That's what Jesus did. That's what happened. Now, the resurrection, we'll get to that too. Matter of fact, that's August 12th. 
I had that on the calendar months ago before we decided to go up there for our, that's going to be my last sermon on Matthew. But it's so cool. The resurrection changes everything. We'll get there. Let's pray and we're going we're to go right into communion. Keep, go ahead and put your eyes, your, close your eyes, heads down. So we're going to go into a time where I want you just to reflect first. And then whenever you're ready after that to get up and uh, go partake. And you just what you do is just walk over to one of the two tables we have on either side and you take one of the crackers, you dip it in the juice and you can go back to your seats or go to a part of the room here with, by yourself or with your friends and family and uh, then just take it and then we come back together and, and we'll be singing a, a closing, closing song. So Lord, we, we thank you because uh, what we celebrate in communion, it's not a ritual a ritual that saves us. It's a ritual to remember. It's a memorial. It's a reminder continuously about what you've done for us. That cry is the cry we needed. Your cry of agony, we needed you to cry that out. Because without that sacrifice being offered, without your your taking on of our sins and the penalties, we would have no hope. Your forsaking is our freedom in you, Lord Jesus. So thank you. May this meal today be one ever ever richer for us. May this meal, this little sampling, just remind us that to taste and see that the Lord is good. That That you are awesome and full of mercy and compassion and hope and help and grace and forgiveness. So Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.